0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
3: And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, December 7th. 2022.
2: Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro continues his ongoing series of reports on the local news, Civil or Not, the court case of Talevsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue.
3: Also coming up in the next half hour, Holiday Hazards on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines.
2: The Bloomington City Council Climate Action and Resilience Committee met on November 30th to discuss the next steps to move forward with Climate Action Plan Strategy TL1I, which would phase out Gas-powered lawn, garden, and off-road equipment. Councilmember Isabel Piedmont Smith asked if snowblowers would be included in the ordinance. Councilmember Matt Flaherty replied and explained what would be included in the ordinance.
4: I think it's uh, the plan says um, off-road, off-road, city citywide off-road and lawn equipment. I think anything that is fossil fuel. Um, uh, that is driven by fossil fuel combustion uh, and the internal combustion engines for opera equipment fall under this purview. There's much less of a mention around like construction equipment, right? With heavy duty equipment is going to be much slower in the transition. It might be more about clean fuels and it might be a longer phase in timeline for where electrification is really viable. Um, so there are different categories of equipment, right? In, in the lawn area, we can talk about two-stroke support engines, we can talk about the uh, the sort of cost categories of equipment, riding versus, you know, quick mowers, that kind of thing. It may have substantially different considerations in terms of availability of equipment, possible placement, all that kind of stuff. But yes, I think I think that technically, the way I read it anyway, the snow snow blowers would fall under this.
2: Councilmember Ron Smith said an incremental approach to implementing the strategy would be best, and suggested that they begin with phasing out leaf blowers.
5: Doing do in some kind of incremental approach. As opposed to all at once, I think we'll just freak people out if we do it all at once. Um, but the leaf blowers, yeah, people can understand that. And uh it's noisy and obnoxious and then it comes along with you know highly polluting. Um I think I think uh I, I was looking at the uh literature across the internet today, and there's lots and lots of places that are doing uh and they're starting with leaf blowers, it appears they are gas-powered, so.
2: Flaherty agreed that leaf blowers would be the easiest to replace and other machinery might take longer. He added that it would be a bigger impact if they are able to get Indiana University, county government, the school district, and
4: businesses to follow suit. Uh, at least for what we own, like spray trimmers you know, and blowers, like maybe that's easy enough to be switched to electric by the end of 2023. And uh, everything else is going to be more of a time of replacement time. Uh, so, yeah, I think we have a lot of like, information gathering to do to figure out what is achievable um, on that front. Uh, in terms of impact, um, I think getting, you know, we sort of have more control over city uh, uh, operations, obviously, as a, as a community, we can demand things, but if we can't forfeit or limit limiting alliance, like... You know, we don't have quite the same level of control. So I think on that sort of voluntary commitment side, it would be great, again, to get that university, county government, and the school district all with their substantial, um, you know, making substantial grounds uh, engaged, maybe even some larger business, uh, you know, business campuses and different champions in the, in the kind of business community, including the lawn, lawn care sector.
2: Council member Dave Rollo replied that he believes some businesses would be interested but he thinks some businesses might see this as government trying to overregulate them. He emphasized that they need to offer those businesses incentives to phase out their equipment.
4: In
5: terms of the motivation that the city has to do this, what the city plans and doing it's for itself, yeah. and understanding that there is a there's a cost to this. Um, I think certainly businesses have more cost part of it, uh, you know. State and um, and then hearing from them. I mean, I'm curious to know if they're already in the process of it. You know, yeah, uh, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah, certain businesses might be interested. In already, yeah, I would assume yeah. some some businesses are going to feel like this is government going to you know their business. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Having been this idea of incentives, maybe part of the presentation saying that, uh, you know, we, we understand there's a cost to this, but we think there's a great public benefit. We would like everyone to be involved and we're interested in how we would offset this cost.
2: The Bloomington City Council Climate Action and Resilience Committee said they will aim to hold a public meeting to get more input on the strategy in mid February.
3: On November 28th, at the Eltsville Town Council meeting, the council approved the 2023 Town Council meeting dates and a new account for the Youth Sports League. Council Treasurer Sandra Hash explained the reason for the new account. Is that yes,
0: we had tried this previous to you approving us working with the Youth for Sports, and so I reworded it a little. We had originally asked to rename an existing fund, and I think that it's... Um, will be a cleaner bookkeeping process for them to have their own fund, and their own checking account. So this allows me to create a non-reverting fund in the name of Ellettsville Youth Sports.
3: The council agreed to vote on the ordinance on first hearing, and they unanimously approved the new account. The council also approved a separate fund for the Next Level Trails Grant.
0: Okay, so Denise brought me an receipt. That we will be getting money into the trails grant, which also requires its own fund. And I would like to ask that you pass this on the first reading because we have money in transit. We've gotten the notice of the ACH. It just has not hit our bank yet.
3: The council unanimously approved the new fund on the first reading. Next, they tabled the second reading of the ordinance to fix the salaries for 2023. Hash explained that they need to revisit the salary ordinance before passing the ordinance to establish the 2023 salaries. And I
0: thank you for that. I I, uh, wanted to explain publicly that we are having new focus, uh, rewrite our um, personnel policy. And they, in that process, ask many, many questions about our salary ordinance. And they feel that any kind of uh, compensation that the employee gets should be in the salary ordinance. So that includes insurance payments, and um, well, of course the um, longevity and you know the certifications, but also um, many other things. It just everything that is a benefit to them. All the PTO, the hours they work. It's going to be a very big document compared to what we have, and it should be ready at the next meeting. So.
3: Hash explained what would change in the salary ordinance.
0: Well, the salaries will remain the same, but they will no longer be depicted in a bi-weekly form that we had done in the past. They'll be hourly, um, and the um, certifications will be in a separate category, and the um, longevity will be in a separate separate category. So in the past, I have combined not the longevity, but the certifications for the base pay, So, yeah, it is going to be structurally quite different.
3: Town attorney Darla Brown said that since the salary ordinance would be significantly different, the ordinance would need to be heard again as a first reading at the next meeting. The next Ellisville Town Council meeting will be held on December 12th.
2: In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro continues his ongoing series of reports on the local news. This one titled, Civil or Not? The Court Case of Talevsky v. Marion and The Debate Over a Private Right to Sue.
1: Good evening, fair listener. I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is The Disbulletin, where we cover the latest issues affecting the disability community and beyond. We continue our special report, Civil or Not? The Case of Televsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue. Right now, I am joined by Director of the Disability Advocacy Organization, The Arc of Indiana, Ms. Kim Dodson and Professor Steve Sanders, a constitutional law professor at IU Maurer School of Law, whose specializations include questions regarding the 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and due process, in particular when applied to Section 1983, the statute currently at hand in this case. Tolevsky is saying that 1983 provides implied rights, perhaps, even if it's not stipulated. It's an implied right to sue.
6: So he's saying he's saying I have a right, and what's implied is my uh, my my cause of action, my my right to sue. It's one thing to say I have a right. It's another thing to say I have what is sometimes called it, rather than a right to sue. To avoid using the term right in two different senses, let's say I have a cause of action. I have the power to come into court. There are. Lots of ways in which federal laws often create certain obligations upon um, uh, 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 government entities uh, or or any kind of entity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if my rights are violated, I have – let me give you a quick example. So federal privacy law, FERPA, the statute, the federal educational Privacy law, you know, basically says, you know, Indiana University or or really any university, it doesn't have to be a private university, can't just like willy-nilly share a student's grades or transcript or private information about them. That information is private, and, and the university is obligated to maintain it confidentiality, confidentially, and only people with a need to know are entitled to receive it. Okay, let's say the university, I'm a student, the university gives out my information. You might think, oh, they violated my rights. I can sue in those circumstances, but no. Um, courts have pretty consistently said there may be, you know, the federal government can cut off the funds to that institution, or can the federal government may have other ways of punishing that institution, but just because the federal government says you must keep this person's information private does not necessarily give that person a cause of action, a right to sue if it's violated. Um, And and that's where I said the court's conservatives in in recent decades have become much more interested in in, in maintaining that boundary
1: several organizations in October took such an initiative with regard to HHC. Can you tell us a little bit about what that action was?
7: Yeah. So fortunately we've had a coalition of of groups um, involved in this for, for several, several months and everybody is, is doing their part. So we've had everything from um, an online um, call to action campaign where we are again trying to get as many people impacted from these programs to take action and contact members of the board of HHC directly. Um, We also have a call to action to members of the Marion County City Council uh, to call on HHC to take action. We are calling on the mayor to get more involved and ask the board of which he appoints and approves to take action. Um, Many of us were um, on site at the HHC meeting um, in October. Many groups had been involved in those meetings even prior to October. And specifically, we, we came to that meeting wanting to make public comments to, again, get HHC board to take action to withdraw the complaint. Um, unfortunately, um, the, the meeting kind of went forth the way that it was put forth on the agenda. They did allow public comments, but they immediately um, adjourned following those, those comments. Um, the Supreme Court case was not on the agenda, and no follow-up discussion is planned at this time. And so that's really disappointing in and of itself because, again, we know that those board members have been inundated with contacts from beneficiaries utilizing those programs advocacy groups, very concerned about um, the people that they represent as that group um, on those issues, and HHC is deciding to ignore it and not take action. Um, and again, we really need to be concerned about that.
1: Absolutely. And so you said, and this sticks out the most to me, you said that uh, HHC has not taken action I, I suppose my the real question really also comes down to this, which is how does an enforcement system work in addressing such concerns with Mr. Televsky? Yeah.
7: So, and I don't know if your question is specifically how does HHC uh, respond to issues um, around, to, you know, Mr. Tulevsky. Um
1: It is, yeah. or it's, Yeah, specifically Medicaid or HHC as well. Specifically, yeah, definitely Medicaid, because I know that there's... There's been uh, quite a bit of history in the court before this, but specifically in a court case called Wilder.
7: Yeah, so certainly there is a precedent um, that um, beneficiaries and their families can follow to file a complaint against a nursing facility or any other type of of provider providing services. Um, There is usually an investigation, um, and all of those things I, you know, happened. Um, but again, I think what separates this from other cases is when a complaint is fo- followed or filed, um, the, the the nursing facility or again the provider gets a you know a slap on the wrist, sometimes a fine, um, told to do things differently, sometimes put forth a um, a uh, action plan of like a corrective action plan of how to make sure that it doesn't happen again but in mr televisky's case he passed away so the family then is put into a whole different position of not just making sure that you know the admittance that he was treated inappropriately but then also wants to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to other families and then they have a right to compensation uh, because their, their loved one was abused and neglected in in that nursing home. So um, all of those things have to take place. But again, the concerning thing is that HHC is just not narrowing the scope to should they have been found liable. They're basing the question of should that question ever even be allowed to be asked. And that's the, the frightening thing is, they're not wanting to defend whether or not they did right or wrong. They're just saying nobody should be able to ask or to put forth a, a case that they did right or wrong. Because if you admit and you, you decide to utilize these programs, then again, you are giving up your civil and human rights um, in lieu of accepting help with these programs and therefore Um, there's no transparency and no accountability of how that entity provides care for you and again that is very frightening and concerning and anybody who is receiving services from hhc and other providers should be very concerned about that because any provider who doesn't want accountability is probably not a very good provider
3: Up next, holiday hazards on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more.
1: Welcome
7: to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket.
8: Well, Black Friday and Cyber Monday have come and gone, and the holiday shopping season is in full swing for you and me and also for the scammers out there. In a recent survey of Americans, taken by Experian, almost one-quarter of the respondents reported being victims of fraud or identity theft during the holidays, and that figure doubled from last year. While you're searching for presents for your favorite people, it's important to avoid giving gifts to grifters. And here are some things to watch out for. Fraudsters can't build a fake Walmart or Target store with a big parking lot and lure customers inside, but they can do exactly that online. There are extremely elaborate fake websites that look just like the real ones, offer the same merchandise, and work just fine, except that your money goes to the crooks and your credit card info does too. There are fake links to these fake websites sent out in emails and text messages and found on other websites and pop-ups, so it's best to type in target.com or whatever the store name is and watch your spelling. A single wrong character can send you to a fake site. Always check the address shown in your browser, look for the HTTPS prefix... S stands for secure, and for that little locked padlock icon. Then there are the phony emails and texts from stores and shippers. I got a text last week that said it was a FedEx message, we were unable to deliver your parcel, and had a link to tap but it came from a phone number, not from Federal Express, and I wasn't expecting any deliveries, so I blocked the phone number, reported the text to my phone provider, and deleted it. If you get a message you think might be legitimate, it's safer to respond by going to the company's real website or calling their customer service number. Gift cards are very popular with givers and with con artists. The crooks sell gift cards on the Internet, in sites like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, and the card they send will have expired or been used up and have no value. Only buy gift cards from the company that issues them. And if you're doing that in person, make sure the packaging is completely intact. Never use your debit card online, and I don't use mine when I'm out of town. A credit card is much safer, or you could get a prepaid card. Those can be easily reloaded, and even if someone hacks into them they can't get to your bank account or access your credit limit. Or you could set up a second checking account at your bank with its own debit card and transfer just enough money into it to pay for your purchases. Or you can always just shop locally and pay cash. There's a thought.
2: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro.
3: Better Beware was produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young.
2: And I'm Benedict Jones. climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.
3: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio.